few weeks ago, uh, my wife Claudia and I celebrated our seventh wedding anniversary. And uh, one of the things that was a bit surprising, there's a lot of things that surprised me about marriage, uh, but I, when Claudia and I got married, I thought, I've got a pretty good grasp of this woman. And then throughout the years, she's just told me random stories that just happened to come up that are mind-blowing. And I've never heard them before, which I guess to her credit, you don't just sit down and like, here's every cool story of my whole life. Uh, but all of these stories, I'm just like, that's a huge thing. What are you talking about? Have you never told me that before? And it just kind of, it, it enlivens the picture, if you will, of how I see my wife. So I'll give you three of many stories that just, and again, this isn't like, hey, I want to tell you something about my past. These are just like, we're having dinner. She's like, oh yeah, that time. And then stuff like this comes out of her mouth. Uh, a couple years ago, she, or a couple years ago, a decade ago, she was in a motorcycle wreck in Thailand. Someone T-boned her. Uh, and she had to bribe a corrupt cop to keep from going to Thai prison. Just came out over dinner. No big deal. Uh, again, over a decade ago, she led a missions team to a village in Papua New Guinea that had never seen white people before. Uh, it was next to a village of cannibals. No big deal. Uh, and then, this is true, after three months of being there, they crowned her queen of the village. So she apparently has sovereign rule over a village in Papua New Guinea. That just came out over lunch one day. Uh, thirdly, she worked years ago uh, posing as an English school teacher in the red light districts of Thailand trying to help get women out of prostitution and had to flee the Russian mob who were following her and stalking her again. So while I was in private school wearing my khaki pants, this is what my wife was doing, right, <laughs> across the world. So these just come out. I'm sure there's tons more. And she's like, oh yeah, I just forgot. I'm like, that? How do you forget that? I have none of those stories. I played football in Texas. That's it, right? That's it. Uh, so over the years, I know her. I, I mean, it's not like, who are you, right? I, I know her. But you, they're, they're, these revelations keep coming that just brighten the picture a little bit. And that's similar to what we're going to see about Jesus today. You know, if you're familiar with church or the gospel or God, Jesus isn't that unfamiliar to you. But even more so today, we're going to get a story that we've already gotten. Matthew's going to repeat himself, except some numbers are different. And so the question is, what's going on? Is he just kind of needing to fill space? What's, what's going on here? Why is he saying this again? Chapter 14, we got a multiplying food story. Why do we need another one here? And if you remember, we're in this section in Matthew of Revelation, where we see story after story where Matthew is brightening the picture about who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. And that's exactly what he's going to do today in this repeated, if you will, story. He's going to brighten the picture of who Jesus is and, in fact, in turn, brighten the picture of what our salvation is in a way where you won't be able to read the Bible the same way again. And so he's going to very much brighten the picture and bring these new revelations as we learn about our Savior. So we'll see three things as we walk through this passage. We'll see, uh, we'll learn about our Savior's salvation, our Savior's fuel, and our Savior's servants. Savior's salvation, Savior's fuel, Savior's servants. So let's look at that first one, our Savior's salvation. This will be the main thing we look at today. Look at verse 32. I'll read the whole passage again. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. 
And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowd, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So let's remember where we've been. Remember, you don't, you don't just have random isolated uh, stories in the Bible. Every story is in a context. So let's remember where we've been. We saw last week Jesus and his disciples left and came to, we saw in verse 21 of Matthew 15, this region of Tyre and Sidon, which is a Gentile region. And in Jesus' day, Jews and Gentiles don't like each other, right? To a Jew, Gentiles are unclean. So we see even, we saw last week, the disciples are a bit uncomfortable being there. Uh, We saw Jesus uh, encounter this woman who's begging for mercy. And the disciples are like, can you deal with her and send her away? Uncomfortable. And we saw Jesus uh, go back and forth, called her a dog. Tim unpacked some of those things for us. And As we see this woman's great faith, the next thing we see is Jesus begin in this Gentile region to minister to this great crowd. So if you have your Bibles, look back at verse 30. This is the last thing we saw last week. It's where we ended last week, and it's it's the same scene that we'll pick up today, okay? So, and great crowds came to him in this Gentile region, bringing with them lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they, put, uh, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered. And when they saw the mute speaking, and the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So there's this great crowd in front of Jesus. He's healing them. And then we pick up our story today, and we see this has been going on, this healing, for three days. Three days of you wake up, Jesus ministering to the blind, the sick, the lame, the crippled, then they go to sleep. You wake up again, do the same thing again, go to sleep, wake up again, do the same thing. And now in our story, it's time for them to move on. It's time for them to go back to a Jewish region. But Jesus has a, a deep conviction he can't get rid of where he is compassionate for these people. They've been with him three days. There's no food. And so he calls his disciples. He knows it's time to go. So he calls his disciples to himself and says, I've got compassion for these people. They've been with us three days. They've got no food. We're not sending them home like this. If we send them home like this, we're in this desolate place, kind of in the middle of nowhere. They've got a long walk ahead of them to finally get home. And if we send them home, they're probably going to pass out on the way. I'm not going to let that happen. Okay, so that's the situation. He's called his disciples. He's let them know, I have compassion. I know you don't have compassion on these people, but I have compassion on these people, and I'm not going to let them go wander off home where they'll certainly pass out on the way. And so he's got this compassion. That's the scene of the story. And then the disciples respond to Jesus. Now, as you're seeing this story unfold, what would you expect the disciples' response to be? We're in this desolate place with a big crowd. I want to feed them, Jesus says. What would you expect the disciples to say? Probably, I'm assuming what you just meant by those mumbles, uh, was you probably expect the disciples to be like, 
cool, you're going to do your food multiplying thing you just did again, right? Remember like two seconds ago when you multiplied all that food? I guess you'll just do that again. That's what you would assume they would say. Is that what they say? No. Look at verse 33. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? So apparently they've forgotten that Jesus just multiplied food, and their question's a real practical one. We're in the middle of nowhere. We've got no food. We, you know, Uber Eats doesn't exist yet. That's in the Greek. But like, how, how is food going to get here, Jesus? Very practical question that they've asked before. And so they ask that. Now, what would you expect Jesus to respond to that? Hey, remember five seconds ago when we were like in the exact same situation? I'm going to do that again. That's how. Now, is that what Jesus says? No. He's not as short-tempered as us. Right? He's patient with them. And he simply just asks them, how many loaves do we have? How much food do we have? They say, we've got seven loaves and a few fish. And it unfolds as the last story. He tells the crowd to sit down. He takes the bread. He thanks his father for the food. He breaks it, gives it to the disciples. The disciples then take it to the Gentile crowd in verse 37. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. So notice, this isn't just hey, I'm worried about them passing out. Let's give them a power bar equivalent of food so that they can make it home. And it's also not, fingers crossed, hope it's enough for this giant crowd. There's total satisfaction in Jesus' provision. They all ate and they're satisfied and there's great abundance. Just like last time, there's much that is left over. And then we see in verse 38, they leave. After his compassion leads to him feeding them, and there's satisfaction and abundance, they leave, they go back to a Jewish region, leaving the crowd, and that's the story. So, here's the question for us. It's the question I asked at the beginning. Why does Matthew take time to repeat an identical story with a giant crowd with a thousand less people and just different numbers of bread and baskets? Is Matthew really concerned that you don't think this, that was just a one-off miracle? Is Matthew really concerned, of, you know, I promised my publisher this many chapters of Matthew and I got to just jam in another miracle story? What's he doing? Because we've talked week after week, every gospel author is very intentional about what they're trying to communicate to you and how they arrange the stories of Jesus. So what's Matthew up to? Because it does just look like we've seen this and the crowd's different. So what is Matthew up to? And here's where we get to the great revelation of the passage. We have seen, we saw last week, Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. He's here to fulfill every promise to Israel. He's here to succeed where Israel has failed. He calls 12 disciples to represent the 12 tribes. He's here to be the perfect Israel, to succeed in the desert, where they wandered in the desert and were constantly falling to temptation. Jesus goes into the desert with the devil himself, and he succeeds. He's here to be the perfect Israel, the perfect temple, the perfect priest, the perfect prophet, the perfect king, the perfect Passover lamb. He's here to be the perfect law fulfiller. 
everything, all the hopes of the Old Testament, he's here to answer. And here we see that all the great longings we have in the first 39 books of the Bible, all the great hopes of the Old Testament are meant to extend to not just the Jewish people, but the Gentiles as well. Salvation is not just going to a specific nation and stopping. Rather, the table of salvation is overflowing to the Gentiles. We saw last week the table of salvation and the crumbs that the Gentiles wait to spill over. Tim unpacked that really well. Here we see the table of salvation being vigorously brought to the waiting Gentile crowd. And so he's showing us a, a, a vivid picture, if you will, of the picture we saw last week. The Gentiles are included in the table of salvation, which is a paradigm-shifting revelation. You can never read the Old Testament the same way again once you see this reality that when God chose Abraham and Israel, Abraham's offspring, he was not excluding the rest of the world. Rather, his ultimate plan is to save the world, get the world back to the garden through Abraham's family. Look at Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham and the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's call of Abraham, God's call of Israel God's promises to Israel were always meant to spill out into the entire world. We're always meant to overflow into the entire world. And we're getting this slow revelation here. And let me just give you a a spoiler alert. We're going to get to the end of this book one day in Matthew 28. And Jesus is going to stand before his disciples. And he's going to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go where? Everywhere from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth and herald my glorious salvation. Take the bread of life to the starving souls in the world. That's what we're getting a little preview of, that God's mission was always that the earth be covered with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, that all nations stream into Zion and worship King Jesus. That is why Matthew is repeating this story, because he wants you to see very clearly salvation has come to you, O Gentiles, 2,000 years later, McKinney. He wants you to see the wonderful table of salvation spilling over, not just in crumbs, but in abundant satisfaction the bread of life being brought to you and put in your lap. Another thing that, another way Matthew brings this out, you might be wondering about the numbers. We'll see next week, Lee will preach a passage where Jesus highlights the number of leftovers they've had in the the 4,000 and 5,000 story. But so notice a couple of things. Look at verse 34. Jesus asks, how many loaves do we have? They say seven. We see the number seven just repeated all throughout this passage. 
You ever wondered, why does Jesus ask that pointless question? It doesn't matter how many loaves you currently have. You're about to have enough for 4,000 plus people. (laughs) They could say, we have zero loaves. And he would say, fine, that doesn't limit me in any way, right? Matthew's drawing your eyes to something. How many leftovers do we have in verse 37, I believe, seven? And so if you remember back to the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 leftovers. Again, Lee will uh, preach on this a little bit next week. But most commentators will say what Matthew's trying to highlight is uh, the Jewish number 12 is meant to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So you think the feeding of the 5,000, which was to a Jewish audience, salvation is going to the Jews. And then the Jewish number seven uh, is, is meant to be a number of completion. And so most commentators will say Matthew's hinting here with these two stories of Jewish salvation spilling over to the Gentiles in a way that is complete, right? God's complete salvation, God's perfect, complete salvation. So there might be some hints there as well. But again, that is what Matthew is trying to show you. That's the revelation of this passage. Jesus is not just the Savior of Israel. He is the Savior of the world which is incredible news for you, which is very good news for you because this is you we're talking about. You're in this crowd. You're a Gentile, to my knowledge, and most of you, if not all of you, are in this crowd. Let me give you a a spiritual picture of your life, the spiritual reality of your life Every one of you, me included, we were born in a prison cell, in a, in a maximum security prison next to an active volcano. And there's no way out. There's no hope. Your cell door is shut. There's no way that you could be delivered. You feel the rumbling beneath your feet. You never know when the day might come that that volcano will erupt and you will be done. And you hear there's another cell block that is really hopeful because they've got all these promises that someone's going to come deliver them one day. And the most you can say is, good for them. That doesn't affect me any. And so you remain hopeless. You're destined for destruction until a day comes when you hear your cell door unlock and slide open. And you see the deliverer has actually come for you. And as he leads you out of your cell and out of the prison, you learn a bit more about him. And he's not just a random deliverer, he's a king. And in fact, he's the king. And he's not just leading you away from the volcano so that you'll just not die. He's leading you to his kingdom where you're going to sit in his courts with him. In fact, you're going to dine at his table with him forever. That's the picture that Matthew is painting, and it's the reality of everyone who's met Jesus in this room. That's the reality of your life. Now, here's the moment where that reality is either intellectual knowledge or life-changing knowledge. Because I, I doubt very few of you, when I say Jesus is the Savior of the world, go, what? I didn't know that, right? You're in church. Unless you're, it's your first time, in, in which case, welcome, right? Uh, I doubt that's not breaking news to you. So here's the moment. Is this just, Jared's just giving us information that we've already had before, or something that is 
genuinely life-changing because you might say, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Yeah, I know, but here's my question. Do you know? Have you heard your cell door unlock and slide open? Have you seen your Savior's hand extended to you? And have you taken it as he leads you not just away from destruction, but into the land of abundance, into his land? Do you know the joys of his salvation? Do you walk with this great deliverer? Did you wake up this morning and flee to that well of salvation to drink deeply of the joy that is the main thing about you? You were dead, now you're alive. You were lost, now you're found. You were blind, now you see because the Messiah, the promised Messiah to Israel has come to you with the bread of salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 12, remember that you were at one time, or at that time, separated from Christ Jesus. You were in the prison, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world, that's old you. And then verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you sit at that table and feast? When you wake up, does that Ephesians 2 reality of your life, that is the primary reality of your life, saturate your mind and fill your heart with joy, the joy it was meant to fill your heart with? I was lost and now I'm found. I was separated, but now I've been brought near. And there may be some of you who are still sitting in your prison cell. The door's been open, his hand is out. But either you don't really think the volcano's gonna erupt or you don't trust him, you trust more in yourself. Let me just lovingly tell you, there will come a day when his hand is withdrawn and the volcano erupts. And so flee to him while his hand is still extended because it is extended. It's extended with great compassion and mercy. And so that's what Matthew wants you to see in this story that just seems like repeating the same thing. That's why he shows it. He wants you to know, O oh Gentiles, you have been invited to the salvation feast of the living God, the bread of life has been brought to you. That's Matthew's main point. That's the main portrait that he's painting, a wonderful portrait. But the next thing I want us to see is he's, he's woven in this story details that make the portrait we just saw shine all the more. So the next thing, let's look at the Savior's fuel. So we just looked at the Savior's salvation. Next, let's look at the Savior's fuel, his, his motivation. 
So as we're seeing, Jesus is the savior of the world. He's the savior of Jew and Gentile. And so Matthew, this is very important for you to see. Matthew doesn't just want you to see that Jesus is your savior. He doesn't just want you to grasp only Jesus' work. He wants you to see the kind of savior that he is. He wants you to see the character of the one who is saving you, which matters. If you're in a prison camp in World War II, liberation is great. It really matters if the Americans are liberating you or if the Soviets are liberating you. The character of your deliverer really, really matters because being rescued in and of itself will only take you so far. It just gets you out of danger. Being rescued is eternally joyful if the character of the rescuer is good. And Matthew wants you to see the character of your rescuer is very, very good. Look back at the first verse that we saw, verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry. So Matthew, we've seen several times, Matthew, as kind of the narrator, will tell us a lot. Jesus saw the crowd and he was moved by compassion. We've seen that time and time again. This is actually the only time in the whole gospel where we see the words come out of Jesus' mouth. I have compassion. And notice, it's not just, I feel bad, shouldn't we feed them? It is a resolute, I am not leaving them until they're fed. They will not leave this place hungry. My heart is going out to them. It's full of compassion and care. And so what's Matthew doing here? How is he brightening the picture? Matthew wants you to see Jesus's power flows from his compassion. Jesus's powerful provision is streaming from a heart of compassionate care. His salvation arm is being moved by a loving heart. You are not just being rescued by someone who's strong. You are being rescued by someone who cares for you infinitely. Which again matters. If you, we don't have a problem with God being strong or in charge, but if that's where you stop, God's strong and you stop thinking more about him, nothing separates him from every other horrible dictator in history. Stalin's strong. Hitler's strong, they're in charge. What's the difference if you stop there besides more strength from God, which might just be more terrifying if he's wicked, if the character isn't good? And Matthew is showing you what is motivating the one who's in charge, what's motivating his deliverance of you, what's motivating his salvation of you is a heart filled to the brim with care, how you view the character of your God will affect your life more than anything else. That's a big statement I just made. How you view the character of your God will affect your life more than anything else. Let me ask you a question. What does the devil go after in Genesis 3? What is he trying to poison 
in Eve's mind and in Adam's mind as he passively stands next to her. God's character. Did God say? Surely that's not true. Surely he knows that if you do this thing, you'll be like him. He's withholding good for you. His motives aren't pure. You can't trust his words because you can't trust his heart. That is what the devil went after. That's how he succeeds. And his strategy has not changed. He knows when you go to pray and he whispers successfully into your ear, sure, he's saved you, but look how much you screwed up. He's probably so fed up with your terribleness. He loves you because, yeah, I can't go back on his promises because then he wouldn't be truthful, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't like you. Look at all the other people who are better than you that he's probably proud of. He's not proud of you. I'm not sure you're still a Christian. Like, if he could poison you with that, what's that going to do to your prayers? What's that going to do to your evangelism? What's that going to do when you go through unthinkably painful things and at best you've got in your mind an indifferent, distant God who's waiting on you to do better? The devil does not want you to see what the scriptures are screaming at you which is your God cares for you and has compassion on you with a love that surpasses all knowledge. You grasp that. You tell the devil and Wormwood to shut their mouths. You will never pray the same again. As you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you will actually fear no evil because your good, caring, compassionate shepherd is with you. You can have a joyous feast in the presence of your enemies with your cup overflowing. Why? Because I know my good shepherd will never leave my side. He will not let me go into a desolate place. And even when it looks desolate, you've got no evidence of his good hand. You can cling to his good heart. And in the same way, when we teach our you know, three-year-old how to swim, and he thinks, we move our hands, he dies. We are positive. A, you can almost stand. B, there's zero chance you're drowning. I'm here. His perception is there's just water and sinking and death beneath your grip. We're convinced. You're fine. You are totally fine. But all he has to go on is our words and our promises and trusting that we're good. And please see, God speaking to you through his words saying, I'm good. Your weakness draws me closer to you. It doesn't make me revolt in disgust. Your failure is why I sent my son to succeed where you didn't. And so it's an opportunity to you to flee to his open, merciful arms. That's what Matthew wants you to see. Not just that he is a rescuer, but the kind of rescuer that you have. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, was also a, a pastor and uh, is most well-known besides Amazing Grace for his letters. He just a profound letter writer, would write to people in his congregation, and he wrote to one congregant who was wrestling with this, someone in his church who was wrestling with this reality, felt like God had abandoned him, and he just said this long, beautiful letter, every angst you have, he sees, and he's measured out how much compassion, his, it fills his heart with compassion. Every hard season, he's measured 
with the same love and wisdom that he measured the heavens. And he closed by saying this, what then shall we fear? Or of what shall we complain when all our concerns are written upon his heart? And their management to the very hair of our head are under his care and providence. When he pities us more than we can do ourselves, and he has engaged his almighty power to sustain and relieve us. Jesus' power is flowing from a heart that is compassionate. That's the Savior you have, that's his fuel. That's what drives him and motivates him to act. That's the second thing we need to see to brighten the picture. One more thing I want us to see before we close. The Savior's servants. Look at verse 35 again. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they ate and were Satisfied. So Lee talked about this a bit when he preached on the feeding of the 5,000. Notice, how does the life-giving bread get to the hungry crowd? Jesus does the multiplying, takes the bread, puts it in the disciples' hands to take it to the people, to take it to the hungry crowd. Jesus does all the miraculous power himself, then hands it over to his disciples to take to the crowd. And in the same way, the devil's strategy of getting you to doubt God's character hasn't changed in thousands of years. Jesus' strategy for taking his salvation to the lost world hasn't changed either. Again, Matthew 28, we'll see Jesus stand up victorious. He's gone to the cross. He's paid your debt. He's defeated the devil. He's been raised victorious. And then he stands before you and me and every Christian in existence and says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. You now, therefore, go. Make disciples. Take this salvation and declare it all over the world. He puts the bread of life in your hands to take to hungry souls. Look at Romans 10. Paul unpacks this beautifully. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How are they to preach if you don't take the bread? If you don't move your feet towards the hungry world, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who take the good news. The gospel goes forth by you taking the bread of salvation to the starving world. And notice one more thing. Jesus just isn't telling you what to do. He's showing you how to do it. He's modeling how to do it. As you take the gospel to a lost world, you're meant to do so with a heart bleeding with compassion and care. When you look out on the lost, starving, dying world, what should flood your heart is compassion that fuels you to take the gospel to them. That fuels you to pray for them. 
That's the posture we're meant to have when you see your neighbor who's lost, when you see stuff you consider foolish on the news, right, out there in the world. That's meant to motivate you not to cynicism and mocking and scoffing and how dumb are they that they would vote that way and make my life so much worse, but actually compassion and care and saying, I've got the cure for that death. I have the bread. The bread has been put in my hands to take to those that are starving. Does that compassion fuel you to take the bread of salvation to those outside of this building? And if you're honest with yourself and the answer is no, let me just encourage you, get nearer to your Savior. Get closer to the one who has a heart that only brims with compassion. Saturate your mind with the gospel. You want to fix that problem of indifference towards the lost and dying world? Remember the reality that you were once in the crowd, starving. You were once far off and foolish, without hope, cut off from the promises and without God in the world. And with a heart filled with compassion, Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay your debt, to take away your wrath, to get you away from the volcano and to bring you into his courts and to invite you to the table. His body, the bread of his body was broken and his blood was shed also that you could come dine at the feast with him. And if that's true of you, if you've been shown that kind of compassion, how could you ever look on anyone else without it? How could you ever look at a world that's starving and scoff? Saturate your mind with the beauties of the gospel. This is the table of salvation that's been extended to you. The Savior of the table sees you with a heart filled with compassion, and this Savior of the table has called you to be servants of his table that others might taste and see the goodness of the bread of life. So don't neglect the feast that you've been invited to, and don't withhold the invitation from others. Let's pray. Father, again, we pray as we always pray. All these things are supernatural. And so I pray that you, a supernatural God, would stir it in our hearts, that you would give us hearts that, like your son, looks out on lostness and hunger and is burdened with care and compassion that leads to a resolute, I will not leave until this problem is met with the gospel. I pray that that would be our motivation, that our, our evangelism isn't just driven by uh, potentially cold obedience, but rather we would see the needs that's there. We would see the hungry souls that were there. And, and most of all, uh, as Lee taught this morning, that we would see your wonders and how wonderful your son is and how much he is worthy of all praise, every lips every pair of lips that have been created in this world, you deserve the praise from. And I pray that that would be what motivates us. The nearer we get to your son and the more glorious we find him, 
that that would just motivate us all the more that others must see how wonderful he is and that we might live these sort of otherworldly lives who just have an unexplainable joy, a peace that surpasses all understanding that no matter the, the darkness of the valley, there's a holy contentment, I will fear no evil, my good shepherd is with me. Praise you, Father, for your wonderful plan of salvation that we stand here 2,000 years later because the table has spilled over. And you've invited us not just to dine with you, but to join your family, to be your adopted sons and daughters, that the love you poured out on your son for all eternity might be poured out on us. Let us live there by faith. We pray in your son's wonderful name. Amen.